Hi, I'm Christopher Yu, co-founder of United Perfumes. I'm uh, Laurent Delafon, co-founder of United Perfume. And to us, it's a matter of wonder. The tension between creativity and commerce is probably as old as humanity. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. There is no other beauty category where striking this balance is often at odds than fragrance. At its core, perfumery is a profession with its soul grounded in creative processes, yet the category is big business, dominated by beauty conglomerates and licensing deals that turn out crowd-pleasing scents for the masses. However, on the other end of this spectrum lies the passionate and growing tribe of niche fragrance houses, led by the art and love of perfumery. Passion and partnership is the recipe for success for Chris Yu and Laurent Delafon, the founders of United Perfumes and Ostens. They've built a company in the business of fine smells and olfactive dreams. Chris and Laurent, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to, well, to kind of see you. Hopefully, we'll get to see each other in person soon. Hi, Kelly. Hello from uh, sunny London at the moment. Very sunny. Nice, nice. So I would love to start out by just giving some context to our listeners. If you could share a little bit about your backstory, because it's rather unexpected, and also the impetus for how the two of you came together to start United Perfume. That's quite a long, <laughs> convoluted story. So, so I always say to, to people that ask, you know, how did you end up here? Is because ultimately we're customers. We're fans of fragrance. We used to buy fragrance before we even were in the industry. And I think that still drives everything that we do. I have a very odd background for the industry in that I'm a tax litigator by training. So I used to sue the government on behalf of oil companies to try and get them off paying tax. So you can imagine how much joy there was in that job. And for me, I'm from the wine industry originally. That's that's my background. And when I first came to the UK, I used to work for a wine business. And really, it all evolved. It's all a matter of nose, as you would say. It's all a matter of smells. From wine to perfume, it was a chance encounter with uh, Mohamed Latawi, the managing director of Diptyque, and Yves Quellan, one of the co-founders when he was still alive at the time. And that was this amazing encounter that led to the start of our first business called Saint-Germain, which was a distribution company for Diptyque here in the UK. And when was that? That was quite a while ago. That was some years ago because... Uh, 1999? 1999, yeah, yeah, roughly. And again, I have these sort of amazing, especially when you ask me that question now, this sort of flashback moment of like, my goodness, I remember, and I think it was 98, 97, my first trip to Paris ever, coming from small town New Zealand, arriving in Europe, going to Paris, and then dragging my friends across the Boulevard Saint-Germain all the way to near the Sorbonne to find this little perfume shop that I had heard about and bought my first Diptyque candle and Diptyque perfume. And little did I know that a couple of years later, I would meet Laurent and we would end up working with him. So, you know, it's just set everything in motion that we are fans first before we end up working with whichever brand. It's kind of amazing because I was just remembering 
Diptyque was one of the first candles we carried way back when in the Bliss catalog. And I remember being so excited when they said yes. And I think it's, you know, for those who don't have the historic memory that we have, I mean, it was quite a niche business at the time. It was very small. And to be honest, the team surrounding the founders basically was all piling in above the store and underneath the store on Boulevard Saint-Germain which is obviously a far cry from the diptych of today's. But back then, it was really, really a small business. It was, it was, it was a business. Come it on. wasn't a business back then. It was this amazing collective of artists yeah. and, and the greatest sort of historical literary sort of Bloomsbury or factory Warhol. There was, you would have the window designer piping in on product development for fragrance and packaging was done by, you know, a fine artist. And I think, you know, when you start, certainly for me, when I started a career in fragrance, working with such an amazing bunch of authentic, passionate, joyful creatives it's a bit spoiled after that. And, and, you know, all these words we see in marketing today, joyful and authentic and creatives. And, and yet I really feel like that moment in time in the late 90s, Diptyque were making decisions based on heart, not business head. It was all about passion. It was a business run by two of the surviving co-founders, one of their friends. And uh, that was that. It was all about what, what felt right and what they felt passionate about. Yeah, it was a time when we couldn't rely on Google Analytics to tell us what trends were. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Fragrance is obviously more than a business for both of you. And your passion and excitement about fragrance, it's palpable, even sort of just talking about it, but in person even more so. But where did this passion come from for both of you? For me, Kelly, it was, it's a retold story. So this is not a memory of mine. My mother tells me the story of when I was sort of five, six years old in New Zealand, in small town New Zealand, taking an internal flight. So a flight from, I think, Wellington to Picton, which is this 20 minute puddle jump. And I said to my mum at that age, I want to go to the airport early to play in duty free. And it was this thing about the perfumes and duty free and what they represented at that point to this little boy in New Zealand of this glamour and excitement and and another world. And I still feel that today when there's an amazing new launch that it takes you somewhere and it's transportative. And because fragrance is the only thing in the beauty industry that's not technical yet. We have skincare that makes you 10 years younger or makeup that transforms you into something else, somebody else or better and hair care that repairs. And and yet fragrance is about emotion. As long as you elicit one from a customer, whether it be positive or negative in some cases, you know, because memory is totally personal. That's what I've always fall in, what I fell in love with originally. And was that moment that meant that for the, the next, you know, 40 odd years, still to this day get excited by other people's launches. I go, we were just talking this morning about a friend of ours, a perfumer, Francis Cojon, launching his first products for Dior and how amazing that's going to be. And, you know, the passion is not because we want to necessarily just make money. It's because we just love the creatives in this industry. For me, in, in fewer, fewer words, perfume actually just like wine in many aspects. It's very meditative. And that's why I don't need the noise. I don't need the marketing. I don't need the sales assistant trying to punch something through for me or whatever. I just pick a scent and and I know immediately 
if it takes me somewhere in my mind. I don't even need to talk with anyone about it. It's very personal. It's very internal. You can sense that we are a little different on that and in the way we talk about it. But I think that's what makes what we do, we give balance from that point of view, you know? Well, your business is one part sort of a consultancy, and then you also have licenses. But you both have quite discerning tastes. You're not sort of the usual licensing company. When that image comes to mind, what is your criteria for partnerships? Would we pay full price? (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) And it's true. Like I walked down Selfridges Beauty Hall today at lunchtime and walked through and that's a new, great new launch. Let me have a smile. And how much is it a bottle? It was like, no, I wouldn't pay that. So that's not a brand that we would work with. And it's as simple as that. Would we shop it? There is that aspect of, you know, is this a brand that we would want to buy for ourselves? But also, is this a brand where the stakeholders, the owners, the people working there, do we respect them and do we sense their passion? And do we feel that we can contribute and add to that passion? And do we feel that we are aligned with that passion as well? I think that's, that's really important. So in many ways, as a business model, that does make it more challenging because it's not simply about revenue generation or, or product development. It really is, can we get excited about that brand and working with that brand. Well, and also many of the brands you work with, like Fornicetti, the best example that comes to mind, are really an extension of design and are kind of grounded in home fragrance first. How much does sort of the design platform play into your consideration? Design is one way to express a story. And I think I would take a step back in that Yes, Fornicetti, for sure, the images are iconic, but what they're actually doing is are telling you stories. And for Laurent and I constantly have this sort of flippant <laughs> saying to our team, it's like, no one needs another candle, no one needs another perfume. But what we love is a story, whether that's me telling my friends in Paris straight out of you know New Zealand, go, hey, let's go to this amazing perfume shop in you know Saint-Germain, or whether it's, oh, there's this an amazing Italian designer from the 60s who was a little bit mad and he fell in love with this photo of an opera singer from the 1900s and never met her, and yet he reproduced 14,000 images. It's the same thing. It's like, can we give someone, hey, can we connect with the story and fall in love a little bit with the stories the brand is telling? And then do we think we can help translate that into to scent and the fragrance world, whether it be home or fine fragrance, so that other people can connect with those stories? While you've developed numerous concepts for others, you launched your own fragrance brand in 2018 with an installation in London. Was the creation of that brand pure inspiration or was there an opportunity in the category that you wanted to capture? This is where it becomes embarrassing, I think. Yeah, the truth, and then I'll give you the the proper answer. (laughs) The truth is that Austin's, our brand that we launched, is really the collection of all the ideas that were rejected by everyone else that Laurent and I refused to give up on because we believed in it. And then, of course, the reason we believed in these ideas is because we felt that there was an opportunity for people to connect with, you know, a brand this way, but also, therefore, it could be a business. So, yes, absolutely, to answer your question, it was both sides, but the first thing that came was almost a slight frustration of constantly being knocked back with these amazing ideas. We always uh, joke that uh, it's born... um, 
equally from uh, passion and frustration. So there you are. But uh, the passion element is is really the most important ultimately with with Ostens, especially nowadays where we finally released our first two candles, part of the range extension. It's been a massive labor of uh, love in terms of finding the right suppliers to make a beautifully uh, hand-blown glass, the right blend of waxes, the right perfume made by perfumers at IFF. And it's um, that passion is really what drives us ultimately more than the frustration. So Ostens is really ideas that we've had that we believe have got a place on the marketplace and that we can share and connect with like-minded consumers. And where we can do, going back to what Chris was saying, where we can have all that storytelling taking place, you know. I hate to say the word community because it is so overused, but I mean, you have really built a community around this brand. And to date, you've kept the experience of the brand quite intimate and controlled. I mean, this is not sort of a massive rollout, and it's not because you don't have the ability to do that. Clearly is a a choice. You're entirely right. We have kept Ostens voluntarily as an experimentation for us, an experience where we do only direct to consumer. So we sell only through our website and we deliver uh, free of charge in the UK and in the US. That is right now, and with our showroom in London, where you can make appointments, that's the only way to experience our products today. You're entirely right. We could have rolled out or ramped up the brand to go wholesale in some of the four or 500 doors that we deal directly with all around the world the Bergdorf Goodman to Bon Marché to Corso Como in Italy. But we decided to experiment and to build something really where the relationship with the, with the customers comes first. And we have a direct understanding and knowledge of the motivation of the customers. To be really honest, there's also an apprehension because it's the first time we've put our name behind something. And our entire career, we've been working with other creatives, other people's names on the door, you know, and other leaders. And I know it sounds so stupid, but the moment we're asked to be the final say and to justify ourselves, it's really scary. And Austin's is, I don't want to say it's a passion project because it, it, I don't want people to think it's diminishing what it is and what it can be. It's more that we want so desperately for people to receive it in the way that we intend and that we desire that we're very reticent on taking each step forward. And so it's people have been saying this week, oh my God, it took you how many years to, to launch your own candles? Because Austin's is a fine fragrance brand. First, we launched, you know, six fine fragrances first back in 2019. So it made me think, you know, you're right that to get to candles, we have some authority was quite a scary journey. And that's why we spent so long working on it. And the community has encouraged us. You know, we have gotten to this point purely because customers and our community keep coming out to us and saying, why can't we get this here? And when are you going to let my friend in Canada try this? And how do we get this to our friend in LA? And so everything is driven by their encouragement. But there is still so much fear in getting it wrong because it is our baby. 
I completely understand. I mean, Beauty Matter was a little bit like that for me, albeit like was totally out of my wheelhouse, but was an idea I couldn't shake. And then once I put it out into the world and people liked it, I was like, okay, are they just being nice? Is there something really here? But kind of like you, I had other things I was doing, but I was very interested in it and also very, very respectful of not screwing up what I was building because there was sort of this potential. But I really think building a brand like that, it's a real luxury today. Yeah, and we're very grateful for that because obviously we have, this is what we call our day job, where we're creating and manufacturing and retailing these amazing brands, previously for Nassetti and, and now since last week, Paul Smith, and we do work with Janori and previously with Citrudon. It's, you know, it kept the lights on in the building. And what it allowed us to do was in our lunch hour and after work sort of thing, Laurent and I would spend hours mulling over what colour goes on the packaging for Austin's or what Pantone of grey. I mean, you would think that we were trying to, you know, decorate this house with the amount of, you know, focus on the minutiae. But I think that's what's made us also enjoy it. Sometimes when you're doing licenses, you you have to, rightly so, defer to the brand and the brand owner and the founder in most cases with us. So that's normal. It's their brand. It's, of course they have the final say. With Austin's, you know, we get to mull and we get to enjoy and spend that time. It sounds like pain when I describe this fear <laughs> and reticence, but it's actually very fun. Kelly, you're, you're entirely right. Overthinking is our luxury. And so that's why we've been overthinking a little too much, enjoying <laughs> ourselves a little too much, the creative process. That's why Ostens is what it is today, but which I think is, is really nice. I feel like you should enjoy it. You know, I feel like there are these opportunities to build something special. And when there's no real pressure for the business, I don't want to say to turn a revenue, but it's not the primary purpose at this juncture. It has this organic way of becoming what it's intended to be, and it's not dictated by financial requirements. And there's something really special about that. But there'll be a time when you'll know when it's right to open it up to the world. I want to shift a little bit and talk about the market because you guys do are so tapped into it. You know, we met many years ago when I had a fragrance brand and I was desperately trying to unlock the UK market opportunity. Each global market has its own nuances. And for American brands, the UK provides a gateway to the global market in many respects. I also feel at this moment, even though I haven't been in London in a number of years because of the pandemic, that the retail, particularly department stores, feel much more vibrant than in the U.S. What makes the U.K. market tick? Because it is not as easy to penetrate as I think many people might think it is. Yeah, we had such a luck in many ways to have lived the early part of our career through what I sort of call the golden age of American brands coming to the UK, you know, like I remember, you know, Kiehl's launching here and, and Spliss and you know, all these amazing, inspiring American brands coming here. And it was what seemed quite easy back then because without the internet, but with global fashion magazines that albeit were three months late coming from American Vogue to the UK, we still got some access. And so you would scribble down these names that the market with the information age has gotten very, very difficult. People want things very, very quickly. And there was a see now, buy now mentality. And at first, I'm going to answer this question sort of slightly in the negative. I've seen a lot of 
foreign American brands come to London in particular and think that by showing up, <laughs> showing up delivering, the business will, will mimic the, the, the trajectory that they were on in the US. And they're quickly reminded, and I'm constantly reminded, that there is some translation needed. You know, yes, we are an English-speaking country and we share those values. And yes, once upon a time, we had the same ruler. You know, there's so many similarities. But as a foreigner to both, you know, coming from New Zealand and being of Chinese background, I get to sort of look at UK and I get to look at Europe and I get to look at the US all on the outside in a good way. And I think that's the stumbling block here is that there is a translation that needs to happen and you need a local to tell you how to tap into that and what part of your brand is interesting to this geographical, you know, or this tribe. There's something happening in London at the moment. It's a really exciting time. There is an, another aspect, of course, is that the market is very focused around London, the capital of the UK. And London itself has got a handful of very, very powerful, very sophisticated department stores that are really the pivots for the beauty industry in this country. And so you do need to make a lot of effort, work with those stores, and those stores make a lot of efforts to outdo each other. So that makes for a very, very dynamic marketplace at the top end of the market. And I think that the rest of the market follows that because the consumers are really tapping into that dynamism, that energy, so to speak, that comes from the top department stores. I think one of the things I find really interesting is this expansion outside London to sort of the larger Manchester, even Liverpool, sort of the suburbs of London first and then even farther abroad to service beauty consumers specifically are Harrods and who else is doing these sort of expansions? H Beauty by Harrods is the regional outposts of Harrods that focus purely on luxury beauty and fragrance, etc. And the fashion business of flannels has just launched a beauty business within their fashion stores outside of London. Do you have any indication of, you know, how important those will be sort of from a distribution standpoint? It's very early days, but what I'm seeing from that, it's that it's listening to, again, the customer that here it's not, let me reframe this another way. We were in New York three weeks ago, and it was our first visit to New York since 2019, certainly for me. And I felt walking through the department stores that each store was strictly for an age group, a socioeconomic demographic. And if you didn't fall in one, it really didn't cater for you. I felt none of them really spoke to me. And it was more the sort of downtown Soho concept stores that really excited me. And if you look at the Selfridges or a, a Harrods or a Liberty here, they are acting almost like little concept stores. Selfridges ground floor every week has a different main stage player in the sort of corner shop, they call it, which is right at the entrance on the corner of Oxford Street. So they'll throw in a big fashion brand or they'll throw in an art installation. Then they'll put in a temporary spin cycle studio or there's this constant treatment of the customers in anyone, any place, 
five pounds, five thousand pounds, come in and have an experience. If you buy something, that's secondary. And I think that's the difference is that when you walk around beauty, for example, we always tease our sales team here. It's like, don't do the, the US spray and pray thing where you're shoving these, you know, cart pieces of card, the muettes with the fragrance in front of customers hoping that they'll connect with the fragrance. It's more about the storytelling, about the experience. And then the sort of, and I hate these terms as well, the sort of omni-channel, offline, online, you know, marry up. Selfridges, for one, is always very exciting. We like to go and comp shop there every week to see what's happening. And more importantly, who's walking through there? The demographic at Selfridges at the moment is skewing very young. We're talking skateboarders and hipster girls and all buying anything from a Vuitton all the way down to a Kylie Jenner lipstick. The appeal of London as the key market in the UK is obviously something that's evolving and that has been evolving because of the pandemic. But before that, with the rise of a lot of the internet retailers, which here in the UK for beauty brands are very, very strong and are good big players. In the UK, we don't have Sephora or Blue Mercury or we have Space NK, and then it goes to Boots. And then that's kind of it. I'm exaggerating. You have at the lower end of the market, you've got Superdrug and Perfume Shop and, and so on. But the, really in terms of the high-end beauty or discovery places for beauty, it's always been really just Space NK. That has not necessarily resisted so well the arrival of the online players. And so the, the energy has always come from London and now radiating a little bit through H Beauty by Harrods and, and the Flannels Beauty concept. We were recently in Milan for Essence, and it was the energy and excitement. I think people were just excited to sort of see each other when they weren't completely freaked out about losing their sense of smell for catching COVID. But they, I forgot what a vibrant community sort of the niche perfumery is. And there were so many new, really exciting brands. And then there were those that are looking to capture this, this moment where it looks like fragrances, kind of having that moment again that existed when Byredo and Labo and Frederick Mall launched. I said to the show producers, I was like, you know, you should really do this show in the U.S. because that's what an American says, right? And he looked at me and said, the market's not big enough. And I had never really thought about it. I had never really thought about it before because fragrance in the U.S. is sold in such a very different way than in Europe. And we really don't have – Barney's used to be the destination to discover niche fragrance. But we don't really have perfumeries in the way Europe does where there is sort of these homes to tell stories you know, you sort of know these retailers on a global level. What retailers are doing niche fragrance really well now? Going back to the, the trip that we had in New York, I love the new Saks floor in Fifth Avenue. Started to feel exciting and fresh. And the week they were in there, Off-White was launching their first fragrance and beauty line, and they had a massive takeover. The counters, they were all well-staffed, well-educated team members, and the experience was exciting. And I think that's really important that there's a buzz in those rooms. And then it's down to Lafayette and Prince, where all the perfume stores have kind of popped up. Perfume Mile, 
all the way from Elizabeth Street, yeah, down to sort of Mulberry Corner of Prince. And that was really exciting. And we were there on a Friday night, so that might have helped. Everyone's spilling out into the street. What's exciting for us in the US is the independent stores, the standalone stores, where you can have the brand experience. I think the time here may be for, in London, the big department stores and the concept stores. But, you know, in the US, maybe it's time for the independents and the, the single brand stores. The fragrance category, I'm excited about it because there's been all this focus on skincare because there's been so much growth coming out of skincare. And then conversely, talking about the demise of color, which is on the rebound. But the fragrance category seems to be on the cusp of another moment, capturing the industry's attention, obviously fueled by the sale of Byredo. And I think really, probably from an investor standpoint, fueled by the opportunity in the Chinese market, because it is a totally new fragrance market in many respects. I'd love to know your point of view on the current market dynamics in the category and where you think the opportunities lie. I wouldn't just necessarily focus on the Chinese customer as of today or the Southeast Asia customer. They exist, they're growing, there is a lot of potential market there. But when you look at the success of uh, Maison Francisco Jean, Bayredo, Le Labo and so on, the success is with untapped audiences within mature markets. You look at young guys who go and buy bottles of Creed for, what, $575 for 30 milliliters or something like that in America. I'm exaggerating, of course, it's at least 50 milliliter. But um, they spend a lot of money on Baccarat Rouge 540 and so on. And those customers were forever left out by marketers as the Paco Rabanne 1 million or the Axe Lynx deodorant customer. And now here they are spending at the top end of the market and driving the success of a lot of the what were considered previously niche fragrance brands that have been bought by big conglomerates, whether it's Lauder, L'Oreal, LVMH and so on. So there is an audience that exists in the home markets, so to speak, in the advanced market where you can talk to them in new ways and you have to talk to them in new ways. And that's the arrival of uh, digital media, all the stuff that people said, but perfume is invisible. You know, why would you post on Instagram or on TikTok? Go and look at uh, all those TikTok videos on Baccarat Rouge 540. It's just complete. It's wild. There is no other words. I love that fragrance is finally getting its unicorns and, and I'm so pleased for Ben and, and Barreto. But we forget that he started off a one-man band hawking around. 100%. (laughs) And I would love to have the formula. And obviously, you know, we'd be sipping champagne next to an infinity pool if we had that formula, Kelly. But you just never know. And I think the investors are right to experiment in fragrance because also there's no, like handbags have no sizing. Fragrance doesn't have, it doesn't prevent anyone from entering it. No gender issues, no, you know, new niche fragrance. Anyone can buy anything and love it. So the customer is unlimited in many ways. So I can see the business case for fragrance brands being you know, eyed up by VCs and investment. It's not to get lost in that you have to have an authentic voice. Ben, right to this day, is still in control creatively. He knows what he likes. Sometimes it doesn't make sense even to 
you know, fellow business industry people like ourselves. But I love that he does it because it's authentic to, again, overused word, but authentic to him and his vision. And that's what ultimately drives sales. And that's what customers are into, whether it be on digital media or buying a 50 mil fragrance, not once, but repeatedly. These businesses are bought because there is a customer, not because it's just a great idea. I think one of the things... Obviously, there is one side of the fragrance industry that is is rather formulaic, and there's a lot of money to be made there. I think the other side, sort of the niche fragrance side, is really driven by the passion of founders and artistry. And I really feel like those brands are going to have a moment again. A lot of them are still very small, but they've been at it for a long time. I'm sort of excited for that level of creativity and founder vision in the category because it feels like it was lost for a little while or it wasn't the importance of it wasn't recognized by the industry. I agree with you wholeheartedly there. And I think it's more, again, about the customer journey. We always say there's a graduation for customers. So my first fragrance I ever got gifted for my 15th birthday was a Crabtree and Evelyn men's aftershave that I, I remember the bottle and what it looked like, but that's where I started. And then I ended up, you know, on a pay phone in the middle of the night because there were no mobiles back then or internet calling Liberty on a 12 hour time difference to order a bottle of Aqua de Palma because it was the only place that was available and getting that shipped, you know, over three months to New Zealand. And then you, then you graduate to the MFKs and the Byridos and the, the Lovers of the world and then beyond that, you know. So I think, you know, like Lynn Harris with what she's doing with Perfuma H, there's a natural progression. And, I, and purely, I think the audience just has started to grow up again and move forward. You know, we all had to get to the niche end of the mass, you know, the, what the L'Oreal was doing things with, you know, brands like Victor and Rolf, which at the time was a niche, you know, amazing couture brand. While we look at Flower Bomb in the, you know, the front row of Sephora now as a mainstream fragrance, when that launched, it was pretty daring. And I still remember that fashion show that launched, you know, that bottle. And so again, it's, we, I think sometimes we've got to remind ourselves how far it's come. And so it's merely, I, and that's why I agree with you, that I think the, the next age of Aquarius is such a starting. <laughs> One last question. Are there any brands that you kind of have your eye on or are kind of cheering for to be kind of that next breakthrough fragrance brand? I mean, Perfumer H, you turned me on to that and I spent a small fortune in the store last time I was in London and I'm still enjoying it. You know, what other brands do you think are special and worth watching? Oh, we've got friends in the industry. So if we name one, we have to name them all. Or if we, I think it's more political to say answer nobody except for Austin's, but then that would be really obvious. (laughs) You don't have to if you don't want to. I'm going to give you what you want in a sec. You know, Kelly, I think obviously we're biased towards anyone coming out of London because we get to see what they're doing firsthand. You know, people like Linda Pilkington at Ormond Jane have been going at this on their own for many years. But what fascinates us is that, you know, for a brand like Ormond Jane, they control every single part of it. Manufacturing is done by them. Quality control, the distribution, the creative, everything is signed off by Linda. And I love her attention to detail to not just the creative, but the the logistical and, and the manufacturing side. 
The same with Perfumer H. The reason we recommended Lynn's new brand to you was everything is compounded downstairs from her flagship store. She has three now in the world, but you know everything still comes from this sort of cottage industry is such a negative term these days, but I love that term because it means someone's touched it, a human's touched it. And I see that with you know London fashion that always comes from kids graduating out of Central St. Martins, doing their own thing, cutting it up themselves, and then... Browns will come along and sweep up the whole, you know, first graduate show collection. And that's the punk spirit in London. And I love that there's so much stuff happening here. There's this amazing incense brand, whose name escapes me right now, that comes out of East London and they make their own incense here and stuff like that. I just think I love that kind of hands-on mentality here in London. Yeah, for me, it's, uh, I love what uh, Julian Bedell at uh, Fuegia does over in Milan and in Argentina. And I, I think that, again, there is that element of control. Everything is done in-house with his own lab, you know, and he follows his own instincts and his own creativity. He, he works at the beat of his own drum, so to speak. And that's really commendable. That, that's really exciting. What about you, Kelly? You went to Essence. What did you see there that was interesting? We just did a roundup. Now that you're going to ask me, I can't remember the name of the, the brand, but there's this Japanese fragrance brand that is, it's inspired from, it's several hundred year old ink company. The fragrances are inspired by the scent of the ink. And again, it's sort of that attention to detail. So they're all very different and they all have a story, but that's kind of the connective tissue. And even when you smell the fragrance, there's an ink stamp placed on it. So the ink is incorporated in the whole experience of smelling. And the fragrances are really quite special. There was a handful of brands kind of playing in the natural space. I don't know. I think there will be an opportunity for one of them. There's definitely sort of a consumer for that. I don't know. You know, it was just really exciting to see that level of experience. And I would say there was like a solid 10 brands that felt like they were kind of beating to their own drummer, not giving, not necessarily giving, giving the industry what it wants and kind of, you know, crowd pleasing fragrances or concepts. They're small in its early days, so it's a matter of can they really commercialize it into a business. But I think that artisan mentality is what is exciting in the category right now. It is, and it's, it's great. I mean, you went to Essence and you came back talking about a lot of different brands. The last thing that I think certainly you know we're naturally passionate about is just the new voices in perfumery. A lot of the time, everything was centered in France and centered, you know, from Paris even, uh, that minute. So therefore, the representation really wasn't there. And when you're talking about Japanese fragrance brands, and, you know, there's another London brand by Mayane, who's, I believe she's half, I'm going to get this wrong, but half Swedish, half Nigerian. And, you know, Chris Collins in the US, just different voices. And I think that's what's exciting. And I think that's what maybe is driving this new wave and what's getting the investors a little bit interested because they're talking to audiences that have traditionally not been really spoken to and, and served. And, and I think it's a about time because, you know, just from a financial business point of view, you've kept out a major part of the population here. And now, you know, we get to speak in a different way and through the language of scent, it is different. These Japanese brands, I think J-Scent and Edith, 
that you were mentioning, they have a very distinct character. It's not exactly what you would expect. It's not this ubiquitous, clean scent. They're really, really nuanced. And some of them are slightly strange and unexpected. Yeah, and I think that, you know, being Chinese, the cliche of Asian cultures like clean fragrances is, dare I say, a white perspective of Asia. And actually, what you're saying about these amazing Japanese brands is that the culture of incense is driving this, the culture of ink and painting. And actually, the experience of fragrance is not through product previously, but historically through the scent of, you know, things like food and art and culture. And so um, that's what's exciting. Yeah. You know, having gone to the show for a number of years, the show really, I guess I've been, because haven't been traveling, you know, have been really kind of analyzing the category from a much more intellectual level, looking at the numbers, but the energy on that floor and the attendance as well, like it was packed. I was just like, there's definitely something happening. So we'll have to stay close on it because I'm always interested in your thoughts. Absolutely. Anytime. You know, we're just perfume fans. So you can just drop us a line. And we can <laughs> perfume for another three hours. I also think that you've met Carla, who is our editor at Beauty Matter, and she is obsessed with niche fragrance. So she's actually based in London. So thank you guys so much for your time. And I hope to see you in person real soon. We've got a date for your visit in London in October. It's in the diary already. Fantastic. <laughs> a long lunch with alcohol and perfume. Sounds amazing. And I'll be hitting you up for a retail list of what I need to see. Let's do the tour together. <laughs> okay. You've got it. You've got it. <laughs> I'll bring my credit card, Chris, because you're dangerous. <laughs> and your trainers. <laughs> All right, you guys. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Laurent. Hi, I'm Chris. For us, it's a matter of wonder because without wonder, it's just plain boring. For Chris and Laurent, it's a matter of wonder. Perfumery may technically come down to a formula, but it's anything but formulaic, especially in the world of niche fragrance brands. This fragrance power duo has found their own balance between the art and commerce conundrum. United Fragrances uses the power of scent to build olfactive brand extensions that marry a respect for the heritage of their partners, while embracing all the complexity and possibilities in the creative process of landing on the perfect scent that is both artful in execution and commercially viable. Their brand Ostens, on the other hand, was born from their desire to use the world's finest ingredients in their purest form. Five celebrated perfumers were tasked to dream big, unencumbered by rules or limitations. So in the end, it's a matter of wonder. I'm Kelly Kovac, see you next time. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media.